So I bring you uh, greetings from the good Lansing. Um, <laughs> every time I'm here and I say I'm from Lansing, people go, ooh. I'm like, I, I seriously need to visit your Lansing someday to see why I always get that reaction. So when Pastor Joel called me or texted me and asked if I would come preach, he said a dangerous thing. He said, you can preach on whatever you want. And so I thought, I have options. Heresy. Um, I could preach a, a rousing message from the book of Leviticus, which, as you know, is where Bible reading plans go to die. Um, and what I thought I'd do instead is talk about what happened in Scripture directly after the Easter story and, and why that matters for us. Since we're just a few weeks out from Easter, I thought it'd be good to talk about where Jesus is now, and because of where Jesus is now, where we are now. Not Brighton, not, you know, Shoreline or, or uh, Racecourse or wherever we may be, but, uh, or Lansing, but where we are from a, a, a spiritual perspective, because it's a central part of the gospel. When we talk about the gospel so often, we talk about Jesus' sinless life, which is important, and his death on the cross, which is vital, and his burial and his resurrection, which is critical for the forgiveness of our sins and the conquering of sin, Satan, and death, but we stop there, right? But when Jesus rose from the dead, what did he do? He walked around on earth for a while, and then he did something, and if he didn't do that something, he'd still be walking around on earth, like Barack Obama on vacation. Uh, the last couple of years, that, that man looks relaxed. Um, and, and, and it'd be like Jesus is on vacation. He got his work done on the cross and he rose from the dead and now he's just uh, playing shuffleboard and, and, and playing tennis and wandering around the earth. But he didn't do that. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father and Jesus' ascension to the right hand of God the Father is critical for us in our faith. And it means that Jesus, in a sense, is still at work. And so I want to start by praying a prayer out of the book of Ephesians. This is something the Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesians, and that this morning as I was preparing, I prayed for us. And so now I'm going to stop, and I'm going to pray what Paul prayed for us. So would you, would you bow your heads and pray with me? This is Ephesians 1, um, starting in verse 18. The Apostle Paul says this, I pray that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Amen. Now, now, that little prayer of the Apostle Paul's is critical, and it's going to set up everything um, that we're going to talk about today. So before I even get into what I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to talk about this prayer, but I'm going to talk about this prayer in backward order. I found that often in Scripture, as I'm studying, if I get to the end and then I go, oh, then I can read it backward, and backward makes more sense to me than forward. And it might just be the way my brain works, but let's look at this prayer of the Apostle Paul's backward as a setup for where we're going to go today. Um, and so in the very end of his prayer, he says this. He says, in the end of verse 19, 
according to the working of his great might. In fact, one other translation, the CSB translation, doesn't say his great might. It says God's immeasurable power. So I want you for a second to try to imagine God's immeasurable power. And by the way, you can't do it because it's immeasurable. But I want you to try to wrap your head around the power of God in, in any way that you can. Like, like maybe let's think about creation for a moment, right? So creation gives us an example of God's immeasurable power. Because one day there was nothing and then there was everything. And that's not actually even true. Because one day there wasn't a day. So before the day was the day, God created the idea of time and the idea of day. Now, in his immeasurable power, he was able to create everything that is from butterflies to stingrays, but he also created time, and he created gravity, and he created space, and he, and, and he created our spirits, and, 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 and God was immeasurable in that power. I want you to think about all the power of God. And so in Paul's prayer, he says, this great immeasurable power of God, the 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 immeasurable power of his toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, he says, is now directed toward something. This great immeasurable power of God is directed toward something. It is unleashed in a certain direction. What does he say? It is released toward those who believe. It is targeted toward those who believe. Now think about that for a second. All of God's immeasurable power, the power that created gravity and butterflies, <laughs> is directed toward those who believe. And what is he doing? Well, according to this passage, it says this, that he is working on the riches of his glorious inheritance. Now, I, I, this is going to be awkward, especially if you're sitting next to your mom. But have you ever, ever thought about your inheritance? <laughs> have you ever sat in your mom's house and thought, well, I want that. I don't want that. My brother can have that. But I want that. And mom loves that. But as soon as she's gone, I'm getting rid of that, right? So have you ever thought about your inheritance? Well, the thing about this passage is it talks about this glorious inheritance. But I hate to burst your bubble. It's not your inheritance. Your inheritance is actually earlier in Ephesians 1. You can go figure that out on your own. This is talking about his glorious inheritance. What God is talking about is he is taking his immeasurable power, he is directing it toward those who believe to create for himself a glorious inheritance. And you know what God's glorious inheritance is? It's you. You are the glorious inheritance that God wants. You are the saints. God is now directing all of his glorious power toward making himself a glorious inheritance. And that glorious inheritance is all Christians of all time in all history that would ever believe in him. And then he says, I pray that the eyes of your hearts would be open to the hope of his calling. So what is he saying? He is saying... I want you to see something that is true about you, whether you even understand it or not. I want the eyes of your hearts to be open. In, in Scripture, heart is a really important concept. And we tend to think of heart as just our emotions, right? It is, it's the Valentine's Day part of who we are. It's our little heart, our love for another person. But in Scripture, our heart is so much bigger. Our heart is our mind our intellect, 
our will, our personality, who we are is our heart. Where our decision-making flows from is our heart. And Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to this reality, the hope of your calling, that God has this great and glorious inheritance, and it is you, and now what he is doing is he is directing all of his power, the power that rose Jesus from the dead, the power that created this world and created butterflies, is now directed into making you his glorious inheritance, which means he's going to start working on you, and he's going to keep working on you until in glory you are perfected, and he gets to give him you to himself as an inheritance. Because one day in glory you'll arrive, and he'll take you, and he'll go, for me? Because you are what he wants. You are God's glorious inheritance. And how does this all play out? Look at the next verse, verse 20. He says, that he worked in Christ when he seated him, or or when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this is how God... And his great might directs his power now. He takes Jesus, he raises him from the dead, and he gives him a place to sit. That's how God does it. His glorious power raises Jesus from the dead, and he gives him a place to sit at the right hand of himself over all powers, which means over all rulers, which means over Donald Trump, and Theresa May, and Assad. Over all powers, over all authorities, over the parking enforcement authority, over your, amen, (laughs) glory be to the Lamb, right? Over your boss, over every authority, over every ruler, Jesus is now seated. And he says it's not just over every ruler and every authority. What does he say? Over every name. Jesus is seated over the name of Joel Virgo. Jesus is seated over the name of Noel Hakenen. Jesus is seated over everything. Jesus is over all. And then what Paul does is he zooms into the church. And he says Jesus is over the church. And he is the Head of the church. And when you see the word head in scripture, it means the loving authority. Jesus is the loving authority as head over the church. And the church, what does it say, is the fullness of him. I want you to wrap your, this is a whole bunch of theology jammed into this. But what does it simply mean? It means this. It means now the church is his representative on earth that he uses to advance his will until he returns. And that is where he is directing his power through Jesus. And it's weird that he would use it because I'm going to give you bad news for about 10 minutes. Because this is where Paul goes. He says, all this is true. I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened. I want you to be encouraged in the hope of your calling because there's bad news. So let's spend 10 minutes on bad news. Ephesians 2, verse 1, the next verse says what? And you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, 
and were by very nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Isn't that encouraging? (laughs) What does he say? This is the bad news. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead and you were walking, which makes you the the walking dead, right? So you were the walking dead because of your sins. And what is sin? Well, sin is any failure to reflect the image of God in our nature, our attitude, or our actions. So anytime our nature uh, fails to reflect the image of God, we sin. When our attitudes fail to reflect the image of God, we sin. When our, when our actions fail to reflect the image of God, we sin. And then he gives us this great picture. He says, our trespasses. And we all know what trespassing is, right? It's a sign that says, don't go there. So what is he saying? He's saying we're walking down the road of life, and we hit a fork. And this side, there's a sign that says, do not trespass. Don't walk down this road. And over here, there's a big shiny sign that says, walk this way. And we get to that crossroads, and we're like, hmm, decisions, decisions. I think I'm going that way. And then we get to another one in the road, and we're like, you know, I really like that direction. I think I'm going to keep going that way. And we keep coming to these intersections of our lives, and that's where our sin is our trespasses. But what does it say? We are dead in our trespasses. If you trespass, you die. Now, that might be a uniquely American concept, but on the other side of trespassing sign in America, there's a guy with a gun sometimes. <laughs> Don't come on my land, right? And that's, that's a uniquely us thing. But when you, so you trespass, you die. You walk where you're not supposed to, you die. That's the walking dead, that we are dead, not just physically, but one day we die spiritually. And I love that Paul gives us several descriptions of this. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. He says we are following the course of this world. Following the course of this world. There are several ways in scripture to understand the word uh, world. And this way is that system that opposes God. It's that idea that every time we come to the intersection, we go, yep, this way. (laughs) Yep, this way. This is following the course of the world. It's constantly turning this way. It's going, I'm going to go this way. This is the way I like to go. This is consistent. This is the way the world works. This is the way that I am going to work. I'm going to follow the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not working, the sons of disobedience. And that is obviously Satan. There is a very real Satan. He very really exists. In 2 Corinthians, it says he is the god of this age. And then he calls us the sons of disobedience. We like to go that way, Right? It's just natural for us to go this way. We live, what does he say, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, we do have to be careful when we read this phrase, and and this is why. Because desire is not always a bad thing. Sometimes it is. See, God gives us desires, and we come to the intersection, and we choose to go this way with our desires. There's lots of examples. Let me give you the prime example of our culture today, our sexuality. There's probably no better example of our body and mind and our desires than our sexuality, is there? And what do we know from Scripture? That our desires were given to us 
by God. That it's a, it's a good thing. And that God gives us a singular context in which to live those desires. A marriage between one man and one woman for one lifetime. But what do we do? We come to the intersection. And we go, I think I'm going to go this way. I, I, I like the trespassing Road. And so instead of reserving our, our sexuality for our spouse, we, we flaunt it to the world. Instead of reserving our sexuality for the, the, the one covenant marriage that we have, we, we, we drift into porn and casual sex and all kinds of distorted ways of, of flaunting our desires, our mind. And, and God, obviously, it's not just sex. It's just the easiest example. We had all kinds of examples in Scripture. Ambition. That's a desire, isn't it? I was riding on the elevator before the marathon in Brighton with a guy, and he was like fidgeting. And he was all dressed up in all the running gear and the water bottles and the whole thing. And I said, running a race? <laughs> and he said, yeah, it's my first one. I said, what are you hoping to hit? He said, ah, I want to finish. But I really want to finish in, in under four hours. That's an ambition. That's a good ambition. There, there are great ambitions in life. It's good to be ambitious. It's a godly thing to be ambitious. And every time ambition shows up in the Bible and it's a negative thing, there's another word attached to it. Selfish. Selfish ambition. Selfish ambition takes ambition as a disregard for others, and so it's greedy, and it's all about power for self. And when you come to that intersection in life, it's either I can have godly ambition or I can have selfish ambition ambition. And what do we do? We follow the course of the world. We follow the prince of darkness, and we walk this way. And it says this, we were by very nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, we're all in the same boat, aren't we? <laughs> we're all in this boat. I heard a guy once by the name of Simeon Zoll teach on sin, and he said, sin is like gravity. It just pulls you, doesn't it? You get to that intersection, there's just something over here that just pulls you that way. Even you, though you know, as a follower of Jesus, you ought to go this way. There's a gravity to it. And that is our nature. What does he say? Our very nature, children of wrath. See, if sin is any failure to reflect the image of God, in nature, attitude, or action, it starts with our nature. Because our nature, we are children of wrath. That's a discouraging word, isn't it? We are children of wrath. But it's helpful for us to remember that sin is a big deal. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time you read those verses, that's discouraging. Remember I told you we'd have a discouraging 10 minutes? That's really discouraging until you notice one thing, that the Apostle Paul, in the verb tense of this passage, used the past tense. He says, you were like this. You were the children of wrath. You were the sons of disobedience. You were those that followed the course of the world. That's who you were. That is who you used to be. But something changed everything. And that something is a someone. But God. But God. This is not something you did. You can't do it. 
because of the gravity of sin. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, but God. Look at this. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in his trespasses. But God is rich in mercy. I remember one of the first times I came to the UK, somebody after dinner offered me, and I must have misunderstood his accent, stinky pudding. And I, I, I thought, well, I've had stinky cheese. Um, not a fan. Leave that to the French. Um, stinky pudding? And he's like, no, stinky pudding. I'm like, stinking pudding? He's like, no, sticky toffee pudding. Now, I'm not a dessert guy, but I felt like an obligation to eat it. Like, I pass on dessert most of the time. And so I said, sure, I'll take some uh, stinking pudding. And he brought it and set this decadence in front of me. Oh, all right? Now just, if you, if you need to, close your eyes for a moment. <laughs> we're not praying, we're thinking about food. It's almost the same thing. Just close your eyes for a moment and picture sticky toffee pudding with all of that, I don't even know what kind of sauce that is on top, and the custard it is rich and decadent, isn't it? In fact, uh, last year for my birthday, my wife had heard me talk about this so much, she looked up a recipe and made me some for, because I didn't want birthday cake. She's like, I'm making you that pudding. Now, here's the thing. This passage says God is rich. He is decadent. He is, he is the sticky toffee pudding of mercy. His, it oozes the decadence of mercy. Now, what is mercy? Well, mercy is not getting what you deserve. All that stuff that he just talked about, you come to the intersection, you always go right. The fact that you follow the course of this world, the fact that you are children of wrath, all of this is what you deserve, but God is decadent. He is rich in his mercy of not giving you what you deserve. Now, here's the thing, true confession. I am not that. In my head, I dream about people getting what they deserve. <laughs> Terrorists, child abusers, people who drive really slow in front of me on the highway. <laughs> Don't even get me into the fiery wreck of a, right? So I dream of people getting what they deserve, but God doesn't. He is rich in his mercy. He's decadent in his mercy. And he says, this God who is rich in mercy because of the great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were the walking dead, even though we kept walking right, we were just like a zombie, constantly following the gravity of sin to the right. Even in that moment is when he was rich in his mercy. 
And he made us alive together with Christ. You were dead, and now you're alive. When Jesus rose from the dead, it it gave you the ability to to raise from the dead. And not just to raise from the dead physically and have eternal life with him, but to raise from the dead spiritually, to be alive with him. And he says, by grace, you have been saved. And this is the other side of the coin of mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Being given something you don't deserve. So like if the slow car in front of you on the highway got a trophy for good driving. (laughs) Like the last person in the marathon gets the prize money. Getting what you don't deserve is the grace of God. You don't deserve salvation. You always choose the gravity of sin. You always go to the right. But God, in his great mercy, gave you grace. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Which means right now, where Jesus is, is at the right hand of God. And right now, where you are, is the right hand of God. Look to your left. Is that God? (laughs) Some of you are looking at your spouse. The answer is no, but wonderful. I really like being in this spot. But here's the thing. It doesn't seem right now like we are there, does it? The reality doesn't feel like we're here, but it says in Scripture, you are seated with Jesus. Does that mean you are on his lap or on his shoulders? No, it is crazier and it is better. We have to actually jump to Colossians for a quick second to see this. Jump over to Colossians verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ. Okay, he's assuming the positive answer. You have been raised with Christ. That's his assumption. If you've been raised to Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is at the right hand of God. So you have been raised with Christ, so you are now seeking what is at the right hand of God, which is Jesus. And, and, and that raises the big question, what are you seeking in life? You get to those intersections. You look to the right, you look to the left. What are you seeking in that moment? The gravity of sin? Or whatever's on the left? the right hand of God. And it literally means keep on seeking. Now, why is this hard for us? Not just because of the the gravity of sin, but what I call shiny object syndrome. You know, shiny object syndrome is right. Ooh, sparkly, right? We get distracted so easy. We get to these intersections, we get distracted so easy. My my daughter, um, from the time she was little, um, she has loved sparkly things. Like, like, and she's now 21, and she still loves sparkly things. She still dresses with all the sparkles and things. And we went um, on a trip to Paris. And for those of you who've been to Paris, you know what I'm about to say. My brother-in-law lives about a block and a half from the Eiffel Tower. And he said, we have got to be outside at the top of the hour. He didn't tell us why. And so we went outside, and at the top of the hour... Eiffel Tower sparkles. And my daughter was like, oh. And the whole time we were there, every time it was the top of the hour, she had to be outside. She had to see the sparkles. And that's how we are, aren't we? We get to the intersection. 
And the gravity of sin is sparkles. We get to that intersection, we go, oh, shiny. I think I'm going to go that way. And so why does Paul say? He says, he says, he says, he says, don't focus here, but look at the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not things that are on earth. You gotta, in those moments where you're stuck at this intersection, you can either look to the sin and the shiny, sparkly nature of the sin, or in that moment, you can look to something else, something that is not of earth. The problem is, the shiny, sparkly things that distract us down the road of trespasses are black at their core. The shiny object is sin. So he says, set your mind on things that are above you, not on things that are on earth. And so I know that the easy way to take this is, well, that's great. Now I don't have to pay taxes because they're of the earth. <laughs> I had an argument with my wife this week. I can ignore her because she's of the earth. Right? Is that what that's saying? No, that's not what that is saying. What it's saying is you view your taxes, you view your wife, you view every intersection through your relationship with Christ. And in that intersection, you make your decisions based on your relationship with Christ. He says, for you have died, and your life is now hidden in Christ. This is crazy. You're not just seated with Jesus at the right hand of God the Father. You are hidden inside of him. What does that mean? It means when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see all the times you chose the trespass. He doesn't see anything but Jesus. You have been hidden in Christ. And why did he do this? Now we go back to Ephesians. Chapter 2, verse 7. He says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He brings his prayer back. He brings his prayer back. He says, I am hoping that the eyes of your heart would be open to all of these truths landing on this one, that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. What he's saying is the inheritance that he gets is to bring you to him in glory and to show you everything he's been getting ready for you. He is so excited to show you the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards you. The fact that you don't deserve anything, but he gets to give it to you. Have you ever met one of those people who just loves to give gifts? They just can't help it? This is God the Father's heart towards you. He cannot wait to show you that you don't deserve anything, but you get everything. His inheritance is for you to get inheritance. He wants to show you the immeasurable riches that he has in store for you in kindness. He's like, I cannot wait to show you who you are in Jesus. I can't wait for you to get to glory and to see that every time that you sinned, I looked at my, my right hand and I saw Jesus. And you were so focused on your sin, you couldn't stop looking at your sin. You tried to deal with your sin on your own. But I looked at my right hand and I saw Jesus every time. And in case you missed it, he hammers it again. Verse 8. By grace you have been saved. You didn't deserve this. But I give it to you anyway. 
through faith. Just believe in Jesus. Place your faith in Jesus. I got the rest. Put your eyes on Jesus. I got the rest. By grace, through faith, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You have been saved by grace. Through faith. That's it. What does that mean for us today? What it means is day after day after day, you're going to walk up to that intersection. You're going to look to the right. You're going to look to the left. And the right is going to look pretty shiny. That shininess is black. And the only way to see that the shininess is black is to lift your eyes from the intersection to Jesus. And to remember that God has poured out his immeasurable power on you so that one day he may pour his immeasurable riches on you in glory. And it's in those critical moments that you can say, I can say yes to Jesus. I can turn left. But you have to view it from the vantage point of being seated at the right hand of God the Father. So this is my application point this week. There are going to be moments this week where something is going to sparkle off in your peripheral vision. In that moment, lift your eyes to Jesus. Remember that you are seated, hidden in Christ, in the heavenlies, at the right hand of God the Father. And from that position, choose to say yes to Jesus. And sometimes, you're not gonna. You're gonna go right. And when God looks at Jesus, he's gonna see, or he looks at you, he's gonna see Jesus. It's a beautiful truth. Jesus ascended into heaven to the right hand of God the Father, and we are there with him. Now the reality is, this is a truth for those who follow Jesus. And I know the reality is not all of us do. My challenge to you, place your faith in Jesus. God loves you so much that he wants to pour out his immeasurable power on you so that he may show you his immeasurable riches in the glory in the age to come. All you gotta do is place your faith in Jesus and he's got it the rest of the way. Can we pray? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the truth of your word and we thank you for your immeasurable power that is directed toward us who believe. We pray that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us. We pray that our eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to see this glorious truth. And we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name.
Amen.